Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nest Tsunami podcast. We are offering three separate conversations from Wednesday night's episode, cost-effectiveness of widespread non-invasive NASH testing and treatment. In this conversation, Mazen Nuruddin discusses how he became engaged in studying cost-effectiveness in screening diabetes patients for NAFLD and NASH in the first place, what his results have shown, and what he plans to study next. Stephen Harrison and Louise Campbell comment on the exceptional value of his work while I join Louise in asking how COVID-19 might shape future cost-effectiveness estimates. This groundbreaking work has the potential to expand and redefine the role of population testing in the coming fatty liver pandemic. You'll want to hear it. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. Every week, a global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guest, hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Mazen Nuruddin, as they discuss the cost-effectiveness of widespread patient testing using non-invasive techniques today on the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Let me take a little bit back background story, and I, I want to be reminded that I have to give the right credit to the right people. So I was quite taken back with the ASLD guidelines that did not recommend screening in high-risk population. Nevertheless, I'm not faulting them. They based their decision on data versus, I think, the easel at that time took a step forward and said, we were going to screen, although we don't have a cost-effective analysis data. So they were both right. There, there was not cost-effective analysis data data showing that screening is cost-effective, but Easel took the, I guess, a different road and said, despite that, we will until we get the cost-effectiveness data. So I took it as a mission. We all start from patient's perspective, and we see a lot of these patients that they get NASH, and I'm in a transplant center. I, I have my craziest story was when I got a guy who, within a month, he learned, and it's actually less than a month, two, three weeks, in his late 40s, early 50s, was diagnosed with cirrhosis. CC and the tumor clot extending all the way to his right atrium. We transferred him here. We didn't know about that tumor clot. We found it here, and he unfortunately passed away within within a month. So many of us have different stories and passion about discovering the disease, screening for it, finding treatments and correct therapies. So I took it as a project, and I have to give the credit to a lot of people. One of them is the second author on the paper, Calm Jones, who is actually health economist based in England that NASHNET actually funded the project. We reached out to him to build the Markov model that it took us a year and a half to build despite published literature and find all the right dollar sign and how much this cost and how much this test is sensitive. The also uh, the credit go, will go with the rest of the co-authors, it's especially Doc Dietrich and my last author, Meryl Renella, who's a good friend to all of us. We started the project and we built the Markov model. And another credit should go to Zubair Yunasi, who you all know, you all read his papers, but he started publishing Markov model in terms of disease transition, multiple papers. And in addition, he published cost data. There's 2016 hepatology paper, 2019 hepatology paper, that the cost can be in the 200 billions. So our concept was simple. We went back to the ASLD and they relied on previous cost-effective 
analysis uh, data. And I think it was excellent at that time. That cost-effective analysis showed no cost-effectiveness. The reason why they said, well, let's take the patients with type 2 diabetes, age more than 50, and randomize them in the model to treatment versus no treatment. They get a biopsy. If they have NASH, they get pioclitazone. Well, guess what? It's uh, pioclitazone is, is effective, but they didn't show quite a bit strong data in terms of fibrosis reversal. What happened after that paper, there were tons of data came out in terms of fibrosis and its importance in disease comorbidity and mortality. So the F2 and higher data came out, and that was after that cost effect of the analysis, FDA took another route that NASH with F2 is the targeted population. Then also the non-invasive testing uh, starting being developed and uh, having better footprint. And also the cost of liver transplant and HCC and decomp. NASH was not taken quite in consideration in that paper. Again, multiple data came out. So because of others, people work in the field, we felt we can put this model together. And I will summarize it in, in, in the, I guess, remaining minute. Uh, so we said we'll take, based on the Verunasi's model, people with type 2 diabetes, age 55 and higher, and we'll screen them for fatty liver. Of course, in these models, you randomize to treatment versus no treatment. I'll tell you what's the treatment in a second. But we said also so we're going to stage them so they receive treatment. So we started the model with ultrasound with ALT or ultrasound with AST or ultrasound alone. The reason we took ALT and AST, we just wanted to see the effect of elevated liver enzyme, especially AST has a role in staging. But we took ultrasound also alone. Then if the patient was found to have fatty liver, we said, let's then do, we chose transient elastography to detect the disease early at F2. And those are the targeted population for the treatment. I'll stop here for a second second and say, we took in consideration a lot of things, sensitivity, specificity of the test, fibro scan, the biopsy, ultrasound, you name it. And they were like true negative, true positive, false negative, false positive. So all the economical analysis. Of course, some people got the ultrasound followed by fibro scan, or people called ultrasound by liver biopsy. And then they were went either no treatment or intensive lifestyle intervention. And that lifestyle intervention is very important because it's not the usual usual one recommended for diabetics. It's based on Villar Gomez data that was done in NASH, and it's a little bit more extensive than the regular diabetes care. They have like one-on-one -on -one person meeting and then group meeting, so it's kind of behavioral therapy. There's cut on the diet. Anyways, to make the story short and open it for the discussion, we sure found that if you find fatty liver and you do biopsy to look for F2, nothing was cost effective. If you do ultrasound with without liver enzymes, then you find the F2 patient and then you randomize them to intensive lifestyle intervention. And we did only 12-month cycle. So we're conservative. We didn't say we're going to go beyond that. It was cost-effective in the non-invasive testing. Liver biopsy was not cost-effective. So that's how we approached it. We then changed it to H40. H40 was cost-effective if you went down as well. And we looked at pioclitazone and maybe indirect data in, in its reversal of fibrosis, and that was cost-effective as well. So in, in that paper, we end up recommending that hopefully ASLD will change that, their guidelines uh, for further recommendation of screening type 2 diabetes patient for NAFLD. I thought your work was excellent and I think it was great to see that in that population specifically that we've now got proof of cost effectivity and I think certainly recently there's been a lot more said about liver disease and particularly liver cancer in the type 2 diabetic population certainly in the UK that it's now one of the leading causes of death in this population so anything that goes to target 
a population where we know we're going to find a significant number of people whose lives that we can save. And now we have proof and data. So excellent work. I'll echo Louise's comments. I think this is really a a very nice body of work that opens a lot of eyes towards this population and I think gives a lot of credence to screening the diabetic. That when uh, I was part of the practice guidance document that Mason was referring to where we did not include this guidance to screen diabetics for fatty liver. And it remember, the guidance document is really predicated on, on a data-driven principle. And so when we don't have data, it's hard to make strong recommendations. So I think it's under revision again. I'm not part of the writing committee this time around, although I'm part of the review committee. I, I would very much like to see this incorporated into the guidance document. I think it was well done. Uh, it was collaborative and pulled out a lot of the salient points that we look for in our screening today. I I do have two questions for you, Mason. Number one, how would you expand on your work if you if you continued to look at this, what would be kind of additional parameters that you would want to look at? Would you look at it, at it over a longer period of time? Would you broaden it out to additional phenotypes of patients? What's what's next? You could build a career off this sort of thing. Where, where would you go next with modeling? Oh my God, you asked me the question that I want to talk about next. <laughs> we moved actually this effort toward looking at the rest of the world, including the U.S. and I'll you what is what is changing a little bit. So we have reached to our European colleagues, and I want to mention recent publication in Liver International by Jun Schellenberg and Vlad Radzu as the, the last author and first author, and they, they published European data on the cost of NASH in European countries. It's not cost-effective analysis, it's cost analysis and how costly is this disease. So we have collaborative effort going in five European countries in addition to the U.S. to look at cost-effectiveness around the world. We don't have Asia yet, but that's another area to go for. We also want to include in the future, in addition to intensive lifestyle intervention, I remind you, fibrosis is, we thought it's the most effective outcome, especially it it correlates with clinical events. But now we've seen more and more data that NASH reversal leads to fibrosis improvement. Thus, you can make indirect relationships. So in this new work, in addition to intensive lifestyle intervention, we will include some of the promising drugs that we think that they will likely get approved. Now, the question is if they will be cost-effective for screening. There's screening and there's treatment. So there are two different things. They can be cost-effective for treatment, not for screening. So that's the next I think, Stephen, to answer your question uh, correctly, look at the European countries, include more treatments uh, and keep updating the model as we get more data, because the model is already built. We built a foundation for the last year and a half, and now we can just make new data or come up with a new data based on new treatments and their costs and yada yada. Can I just ask, um, the cost effectivity data and the cost analysis is all pre-COVID. We've obviously had a significant impact potentially with NASH patients and NAFL patients driving COVID, which has been massively costly to the entire globe. Is there a way to try and work out the effect of fatty liver disease on that cost overall? That's 
excellent point, Luis. I think eventually we'll be able to. It's just we need to see more data in terms of the cost of COVID in certain population. And then you look at cost effectiveness. Because as I told you, like the, the substance of our work came from a lot of literature that Zubair and some, some work like Schattenberg that they have done detailing the cost of every single thing. So we need more data to have a good understanding how COVID affected NASH, although we are already seeing many of them, like the weight gain, not being enrolled to trials. This is a very complex relationship, but it's a very interesting one to, to look at. There was a fair bit of data coming out of China in how many patients got to ITU with fatty liver disease. It drove, and in some cases, 93% of those sitting in ITU were fatty liver patients. Now, the cost of ITU care is extremely costly. So I suppose there is the potential to look back at some of the data that is starting to come out more and more. But I think we've all recognised that keeping well and being healthier is actually the most cost-effective strategy for any healthcare industry, I suppose. Indeed. Louise, thanks for that. One of the things I was going to note is that it looks like the relationship between COVID and NAFLD and NASH goes in both directions, right? COVID has an effect on the liver, but the condition of liver disease at the time of COVID diagnosis, particularly when coupled with obesity, appears to be predictive of outcome. So how does a model play both ends of that at once, I guess would be my first question. I'm sure you have seen tons of Markov models. This is part of giving a credit for other people that they are the specialists. So this is something I would need a health economist to help us with, lo- looking at the bi-directional relationship that you mentioned and compare it to the previous condition. You have also to take in consideration that we all hope that this is not going to persist and it will improve with time. And this time factor and when it's going to go away that we all hope for or some of it will still stick around but with better outcomes it's a lot of unknown so that's like a major modeling from health economical standpoint to me one more favorite people who listen to this podcast are really diverse in terms of profession the level of sophistication and frankly where in the world they live it might be a good thing just to take a minute and walk people through at a high level if it's possible to do that what makes markov models the right way to do this what makes those models work well and then the second thing that might be helpful is to explain the relationship between cost and cost effectiveness if you know the cost effectiveness what does that tell you when you see cost data or vice versa? Sure. So the Markov model, what makes it successful is good natural history data. And you need to know about disease transition and put the data well together. So in our model, we move from NAFL to NASH to F0, F1, F2, and F3, and F4. So you need to know how many people progress or regress in the natural history, eventually how many people get to HCC, how many people decompensate, how many people get to cirrhosis. For instance, let's take the cirrhotics. You need to know how many of them stay in the cirrhosis status within that one year that you randomize your patient. You need to know how many go to HCC. You need to know how many get transplanted. And you need to know if there's any improvement, how many they improve. So all you will see it as a tree going right and left with a lot of natural history data. So that's how, if it's the successful model is built on careful and expertise and careful review of the data, sometimes there's conflicting uh, results, so you have to have to come to the resolution. Let's say, let, let's talk now about cost and cost effectiveness. The cost is, as it sounds, how much this is costing me. So I'll give you an example in our data. So if I remember correctly, NASH with decompensated cirrhosis and HCC cost about $94,000 within that year. 
here. If there was Nash and HCC without decompensation, again, decompensation was, was HCC was 94, without decompensation was 34,000. And then the transplants, the best data we came out from US was between private insurance, Medicare, Medicare was about 350,000. So this is cost. It's a number. Then you have to take this number and test your hypothesis, meaning, okay, I'm going to spend money on ultrasound and I'm going to spend money on ALT and I, I want to check if I spend money on fibroscan or biopsy, which one, which strategy, if I discover the disease early and treat it, will save me from going to more expensive status. So it's the cost effectiveness is way more complicated than just cost. And it tells you if the screening will prove to be economically saving you and the system. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingmash.com. We are releasing two other conversations from this episode, and we will release our next episode on Wednesday, March 31st. At that time, our guest will be Dr. Ian Rowe, who will discuss some of the work he and his colleague, Dr. Richard Parker, are conducting about cost-effective screening and treatment with their population in Leeds, UK. Theirs is a different way of looking at cost-effectiveness because of the significant differences between the U.S. and U.K. healthcare systems. I hope you will join us then. Till then, stay safe. Surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.